The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. This morning's text is found in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. He, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet, he, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, having, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. It's good to be back after two weeks away, although we did cheat and go to the picnics on Wednesday. Um... I want to tell you what I'm going to do. We're going to, re- we're going to be in Luke, obviously, this morning. But next Sunday, what I want to do is, is put the proposal about purchasing the property of Bethesda Missionary Baptist Church into a biblical context in light of our mission and vision. So that's what I'm going to do next week. And, uh, and this week, although we read this whole text, I'm going to zoom in on just the first third, and let me pray the reason why. Father in heaven, I just trust that you have words for us, really, through the whole text, but in this first part of this text, between verse 18 and 23, you have a word for us about the enoughness of Jesus, the sufficiency of of Christ, about the reality of Jesus being who he really is, the Son of God, the, the Christ, the Messiah, our Savior. 
You have a word for us in our sufferings and in our questioning. And you have a word for us as we live out our lives in this broken world between the first coming and the second coming of Christ when he makes all things new. You have a word for each person here, and I pray that you speak it through your word, by the power of your spirit, and I pray that you'd use me toward your ends. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we continue in, in the Gospel of Luke. I want to thank Timothy Dave for preaching two weeks ago. He's one of our global partners on the first account in Luke chapter 7. That's where Jesus is ministering in Capernaum. And he's approached by this delegation of servants from a certain God-fearing Roman centurion. And the issue is that this centurion's valued servant is sick. One of his servants is gravely ill. And these servants come to Jesus and ask for Jesus' help. And while Jesus is on the way, remember, the centurion sent word saying to Jesus, Jesus, you don't need to come all the way here. Just, just say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus said the word. And the servant was healed. And Jesus marveled at the faith of this centurion Gentile, Roman, saying, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And then last week, I want to thank Pastor Bud for preaching on the next unit in Luke 7. I'll tell you what happened. I sent an email saying, uh, I, I need to find a person to preach this passage on the, the, the widow of Nain who lost her only son to death and Bud jumped on it like t- two seconds after I sent the email. I got that one. <laughs> So this woman had lost not only her husband, but her only son. And Jesus had compassion on her. And uh, Jesus came upon the funeral procession and spoke, Arise. And the, the only son of the widow got up from the coffin and began talking and returned to his mother. And and. Uh, The people in the crowd and the disciples were amazed and glorified God, saying, this is verse 16, A great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people. Now, note this. And both preachers noted this. I'm just underscoring it. Both the centurion and the widow were utterly out of resources. Utterly helpless, utterly hopeless without the intervention of God. Only God could help the gravely or ill servant. Only God could help this widow in the loss of her son. They're utterly dependent on God's mercy. Let's not miss the fact that this like so many, most of Jesus' parables is a pointer. It's a pointer. 
It's a pointer that Jesus has come to bring good news to the poor, to the utterly resourceless, to the people who have nothing and nowhere to go for their help spiritually. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus comes and speaks the gospel of salvation to life eternal, reconciliation with God, forgiveness of our sins. To us, the poor, who have nowhere else to go. And we believe and we're saved. That's where we've been in Luke 7. Now the text continues, verse 18. And observing these two miraculous deeds of Jesus and likely having seen other things that Jesus has been doing, two disciples of John the Baptist went back to John the Baptist and reported all these things to John. Now, John's in prison. Why is he in prison? Remember, Herod the Tetrarch, he's a Jew appointed to oversee and govern the the region of Judea by the Roman Empire, by the Roman Emperor. He's appointed to do this task. Herod was an evil ruler, and, and one of the heights of his wickedness was he shamelessly took his own brother's wife to be his own. And remember, John the Baptist's mission was to call people to turn away from sin and turn to God for the forgiveness of their sins and salvation from God's coming wrath. And so when he did that to Herod, Herod didn't turn from his sin, but rather threw John in prison to shut him up. So there's John the Baptist, unjustly imprisoned. And so these, these two disciples of John come to him and say, here's what Jesus is doing. He, he healed this Gentile, Roman, centurion's servant, and, and he healed the son, the only son of this widow, and he's been teaching, and it doesn't sit right with John. John's sitting there in prison going, something's not right here. You know, think about why would these reports not sit right with John? What, something's wrong. And so he, sends, he says to the, to, to the two disciples, go ask Jesus this question. Verse 19, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Like, Jesus, if you're doing this stuff, maybe you're not the one who is to come. Maybe there's a, another one coming. You think, why would John ask that question? Here's the dilemma. Let me give you, I'm calling this John's dilemma. On the one hand, John knows that Jesus is the one who is to come. I'll give you a list. Before John was born, God told his parents through an angel of the work that John was destined to do. Verse uh, 16 of Luke 1. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him, the Lord, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And not only that, John had borne witness to the world that Jesus was the one who was to come. He said, this is John 1, 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
And not only that, after baptizing Jesus, Jesus saw the Spirit of God come down like a dove. This is my beloved Son. And not only that, John had clearly declared, John 1, 34, I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God, pointing to Jesus. So that's one side of the dilemma. But here's the other. Jesus' actions do not fit John's presuppositions about the Messiah. They don't fit his eschatological preconceptions. Whether we call it doubt, whether we call it a strong need for reassurance, questions are arising in John the Baptist's mind about whether Jesus is the one or not. Why? I have two overlapping answers for why John asks this question. One is theological or eschatological, and the other is personal or experiential. Here's the first reason the theological. You know, eschatology is the theology of the last things. So it's an it's a eschatological problem. The report of Jesus' actions doesn't fit John's eschatology. John had proclaimed, according to the scriptures, that Messiah would come and bring salvation to God's people and bring judgment to God's enemies. And raising the son of the Jewish widow I can see that could be a pointer to salvation of God's people, but come on. Healing the servant of a Gentile Roman soldier? Israel's enemies? It doesn't fit. I mean, looking back, John had said he was preparing people for the wrath of God to come. Luke 3, 7. John had said that judgment was soon coming. Remember the image? The axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The axe is ready. Judgment is coming. And John had said, Matthew 3, 12, that the Lord's winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into his barn, gather his people. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And John hears about what Jesus is doing. And he's thinking, where's the fire? Where's the justice? Where's the wrath? Where's the vengeance? Where's the judgment? Where's the punishment on the wicked and on the godless and on the immoral and on the blasphemers, on the hypocrites and on evil rulers like Herod? And the occupying Roman army. Where is it, Jesus? So Jesus' actions do not fit John's eschatology. His expectations of the Messiah. So he asks, 
are you, Jesus, are you the one who is to come? And what I see in that is, because I'm not seeing it. Add to that the personal reason for the question. Jesus' actions don't fit John's personal expectations. This is my inference. Because, well, all theological questions become personal sooner or later. And in cases like this, quite painfully so. And so to date, Jesus has not rescued John from the dark, dank prison of Herod. Come on, Jesus, it's been what, six months? It's been a year? Where's the salvation? Where's the release of the captives? And whether John has an inkling or not, Herod will soon, at the whim of Herod's new wife's daughter, have John's head chopped off. Where's, where's my justice? Where's my deliverance? Where's my salvation? Where's the salvation for my nation? So it gets really personal. Jesus, are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? I just push back for a minute. Surely you can relate to John. Can't you? I'm assuming you've asked questions like these. Lord, what are you up to? What is this all about? Lord, do you see? Do you care? How long, how long, Lord, will you forget me? That's how David puts it. Lord, how long will you allow evil deeds to go unpunished? Why do the wicked prosper? Lord, how long before you rescue me? How long before you heal me? How long will we be ruled by sinful human leaders? What? Why do you hide your face? That's Psalm 44, 24. You've asked questions like that. If you haven't, you will. In your sufferings. You know, we who know God through Christ, we know his love, we know his mercy, we know the reality of the accomplishment of the cross. We know the, the security that we have in the forgiveness of our sins and the promise of eternal life. And yet, when suffering comes our way and dilemmas come into our mind, we ask questions like this. 
Here's my takeaway at this moment from John. When you have questions like that, do what John did. Take your questions to Jesus. Send them to Jesus. Take the questions to Jesus. Go to his word for his, for his answer to your dilemmas and your questions. Don't run off to look for another. Now here's Jesus' answer. When John's two disciples found Jesus, they repeated the question of John verbatim. (laughs) Uh, Verse 20. John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And then verse 21 says, look, at this very hour, now Jesus had been quite busy. He had healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. So Jesus is busy doing these things, healing, restoring sight. And for those who have eyes to see, looking at the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah and seeing the behavior of Jesus, you you can see that Jesus' behavior, his teaching accords with the prophecy. But so Jesus, he, he shows that to the, to the two disciples of John in order to take that back to John the Baptist. He, he's going to put the Old Testament prophecies together with what he's doing and say, go tell John this. Prophecies, what I'm doing. Go tell John what you have seen and heard, verse 22. And then Jesus lists six things. See it there? The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And most of all, the good news, the gospel, is preached to the poor. Poor people like the Roman centurion and poor people like the Jewish widow. Go tell John that. These actions of Jesus accord with the Messiah's prophetic mission described in the Old Testament. Remember, Jesus highlighted this when he, he, Jesus' first sermon in his hometown in Nazareth. Remember, he, he went up to the pulpit. It was time to read the scriptures and give a homily, give a sermon. He opens the scroll to Isaiah 61, and he reads, this is Luke 4, 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus stopped right there, closed the The scroll, put it away. And do you remember when we were on that text, I don't know, a few months ago, we noted that when you compare what Jesus said in Luke 4 there with Isaiah 61, he broke off 
his message, his reading of the scripture right in the middle of the sentence. Remember this? He, he read, uh, he read to, uh, got to back up, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and he stopped and he did not read the next clause. Remember what it was? And the day of the Lord's vengeance. Why did he do that? Because he, he's alluding to two comings. Two comings. A first coming of the year of the Lord's favor, the season of the Lord's grace, and we've been in it for 2,000 plus years. And then a second coming on a day a day of the Lord's wrath, a day of the Lord's justice before all eternity where God gathers his people to live with us forever in the new heavens and the new earth. This is a big season of grace. Jesus came to start in his first coming, in his inauguration of the kingdom before he comes again on a day of wrath before an eternity of grace yet to come. John doesn't understand this. This is, his, his, his eschatological problem lies in the fact that he doesn't understand. We call this the already and the not yet. The already of Christ's kingdom. Jesus has come and he has suffered and he died and he rose again and he reigns and he has inaugurated his kingdom and he reigns over all things. And yet, he must reign until he puts all things under his feet. In other words, sin is still going. Evil is still happening. Why? Well, because the day of wrath hasn't come yet. It's going to come. This is the season of grace and God's patience with sinners that we would turn to him and receive his forgiveness and his grace and be reconciled to him and enjoy him forever. John doesn't understand this. He's just thinking, he's thinking salvation for God's people and punishment for wicked at the same time. And Jesus is indicating, and the rest of the Bible indicates, salvation for sinners for a long time. Patience of God, grace of Christ, richness of his mercy, a day of wrath and grace forever. He doesn't understand that. I'll give you a couple of instances where you can see the two comings together. The writer of Hebrews speaks of Christ's first coming, saying, this is Hebrews 9, 26. Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And then, two verses later, talks about his second coming. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. 
Here's another one that puts them side by side. First Peter. First Peter 1 uh, speaks of Christ being revealed for our sake at his first coming and then encourages us that we who believe are, quote, by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. First Peter 1, 5. I, you know, I, I can't fault John the Baptist for his eschatological misunderstanding. I mean, he was, he was right and he was wrong. He was right. Salvation for God's people would come with the Messiah. He was right that, that punishment on the wicked would come with the Messiah. He just put them together when they're separate. He didn't know that the kingdom would be inaugurated in the manner in which it was, which was not by the slaughter of the Romans, of the wicked, but by the slaughter of the Son of God, the Lamb of God, for our sins. The answer to John's personal problem That was the answer to John's eschatological problem. The answer to John's personal problem is this. What John needed, you could say what we all need, more than release from our sufferings, more than change in our world, in our broken world, is Jesus, his grace, forgiveness, his death for us. What we need is him and all that God promises to be through him. So the answer to John's personal problem, actually, I was looking back on the birth of John the Baptist, and I saw that John's father, Zechariah, nailed it when John was born. In that John's words, inspired by the Holy Spirit, actually, John couldn't, John, I didn't say that right. Zechariah's words, inspired by the Holy Spirit, when John the Baptist was born, were the first words he had spoken throughout the whole pregnancy. Um, when, when, when Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, was pregnant with John the Baptist, Zechariah, John's father, couldn't speak. So the first words he, speak, he speaks are these words of praise to God and about the, the role and the work of his son, John the Baptist, in this world and preparing the way for the Lord. And listen how it tips toward the first coming. <laughs> it tips toward the gospel and grace. So imagine Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, holding this little baby. A new child will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people 
in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sun shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. (laughs) Zechariah, John's father, nails it about the first coming. It's about knowledge of salvation. It's about forgiveness of sins. It's about the tender mercies of our God right now. And though, and through John's messengers, Jesus doesn't communicate back to John any kind of word of rebuke. He doesn't say, John, you never should ask that question. He doesn't say, he doesn't grumble at John's wavering faith, but rather he, he affirms John as the one in the rest of the passage affirms him as the the one who is chosen to prepare the way for the Lord. Now, uh, let me close with with a thought. All John needed was assurance that Jesus was the one. He didn't really demand to know, Jesus, tell me the when. (laughs) Tell me the when. When is the, you know, when is the judgment coming? When it, just, just tell me you're the one. <laughs> just tell me you're the one. And that'll be enough for me. And I'll trust you in your mysterious providential ways to work it out. He didn't ask for the how. All he needed was the who. Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Removing Herod and installing a new government would not have been enough. Escape from jail would not have been enough. Relief from his sufferings would not have been enough. What John needed more than release from prison, more than fulfilling his eschatological presuppositions about the Messiah coming and setting up the new kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth immediately was the good news that Jesus was really the one. He he needed, what John needed more than being freed from the tyranny of Herod was to be freed from the tyranny tyranny of sin and the tyranny of the devil. And what he needed more than freedom from Prison was freedom from the punishment of death. He needed freedom from the judgment of God. And the one who was to come came to give him that. So, what we need most in our times of questioning, frustration, God, what are you doing is to know that Jesus is the one. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. In Jesus, God has come to bring us his grace and and to 
Give us all that he promises to be in Christ Jesus, the forgiveness of our sins, the, the satisfaction of all our desires, all most fully and clearly in the gift of God giving us himself in and through Jesus. Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Jesus comes back and says, look, here's the prophecies. Here's what I'm doing. I'm the one. And then Jesus says, blessed are those who are not offended by me. In other words, blessed are those for whom I'm enough. I'm enough. I'm enough. And all the promises of the gospel, all that God is for us, I'm enough. There's no more. Father in heaven, thanks so much for your word to us. And oh, how I pray the experience of John here and his interaction with Jesus would shape us and guide us when we're in the valley of the shadow, when we're in the time of questioning, when we're in the prison of despair or doubt, when we're totally frustrated with the broken world that we live in and how it's run. And I pray that the enoughness of Jesus, the sufficiency of Christ would overwhelm us and that we would trust you in your sovereign and mysterious, good and gracious ways toward us as your people, as you rule the world for the glory of your name and for our good. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.